Hey, good evening. I want to welcome Redemption Church. Uh, if you're first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to personally welcome you. Uh, just a little bit about redemption. We are one church. We have multiple congregations. Uh, we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Therefore, we make disciples in response to that truth. Uh, the best way that we do this is in a thing called redemption communities. Redemption communities are a smaller gathering of people that meet in various places and various times to encourage one another uh, in God's word, to do life together, uh, just meet different people. And so if that's something that you're interested in, or if you have any questions regarding Redemption Church, best thing you could do is take the information cards that are in your seat in front of you, fill out your name, email address, any questions you have, and then later during our time of the service, you'll have an opportunity during response to drop those cards off in the offering boxes, which are located in the back by the doors. Uh, just a few announcements I have. First is that we have, um, first, the first Wednesday of every month, we get together in this room from 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, there's food here, plenty of food, an opportunity for us to hang out with, with each other, but primarily to tackle an issue of faith and culture. So something about the gospel and how it re- relates to something that's relevant in culture. And so this upcoming first Wednesday uh, from 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m., we are going to have media, Muslims, and Jesus. And so we're going to talk about essentially what we've been watching on TV, uh, the things that we've been seeing on the news. And so Pastor Jim Mullins is going to come and facilitate that time and also facilitate some Q&A on how do we take what we've been seeing on the news and relate to it with the lens of the gospel. Uh, second announcement that I have is we are uh, having uh, uh, seen our significant growth uh, in Tempe, primarily in the mornings, morning services. And so this may relate to you, it may not. Uh, but one of the things we told the 10 o'clock services to be thinking about, is praying about, is that we are very, very close to making the decision to going to two services in the morning. So that would not change where you guys are now. Um, it would still be 5 p.m. and 7 p.m., but probably a 9 a.m. and a 10.45 or 11 in the morning. Uh, par- partly because there's a, there's a lot of people in that 10 a.m. service, and so there's people in throughout all the overflows. Um, and that's not the biggest issue. Issue. The biggest issue is in the children's ministry in that uh, a couple weeks ago we had 23 babies in the baby's room. So, yeah, if you've ever watched one baby, you know that's, that's one too many. And so 23 of those is, uh, is, is a lot. And so uh, we just ask that you be praying for us and that as we make that decision. And also something you can do is be, begin thinking about where you can serve. So with another service comes more opportunities, opportunities to greed, opportunities to hold communion, opportunities uh, to help us set up the room. Also opportunities to be a part of the band. Um, and this is the one I'm, I'm somewhat nervous about because every time you put out an invitation to become a greeter, you just hope that people are alive and they can smile. And that's all you need for that. But then uh, to be in the band, um, you, you, here's what I'm saying. If you have skills, sign up, write it on that, that card and say, I have skills. Uh, but let us know what you have skills in. <laughs> and, and then David will be able to let you know. So hear me. I'm, I'm not trying to uh, tell you you shouldn't. But if you played in your high school worship ministry band and your high school pastor said you were great, I don't know. All right. I was a high school pastor. We lie. We want to encourage you. We don't want you to walk away from the church. All right. So, but if you, if you're here and you go, I know, I know I can play the bass. I know I can play drums. I know I can sing. Um, and, and more than one person has told me that by all means, fill out that information card. And then David Blake and our worship leader will be able to, uh, to, uh, see if that's, uh, true. All right. And so we, I do encourage you guys to sign up for that. Um, before, we, before we jump into the, the message, one of the things I want to say is thank you all who came out to the dodgeball night on, uh, on Friday. One of the, oh, yeah. Clap. <laughs> one of the best things we've ever done, dodgeball, right? And so a lot of people were there, a lot of fun. Um, I, as I promised, did not play, but I was taking notes, watching all your sin. Um, so here's what I mean. People say they're not competitive, and all you have to do is just put competition around, and you will see guys and girls just go at it. Um, and so watching you guys was really, really fun. Um, and, and another thing is, it's just kind of a light rebuke is, I did notice that dodgeball started at 7 p.m., and everybody was here by 6.45, right? We can never show up on time for a church service, but man, you throw dodgeball in there, everyone's dressed up, everyone's there on time, and I was like, this is crazy. So next Sunday, uh, at 10 a.m., 5 p.m., and 7 p.m., dodgeball tournament here, right? So... <laughs> We'll see you guys. Uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. The rest of you guys can meet me at First Peter. Again, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Keep it raised high. Uh, one of the guys, one of the gals will get you a copy. We're going to be continuing our series in First, first Peter. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy that, that they give you so you can own a copy of God's Word. Um, and as you get that, I just got one other uh, announcement, and that's this. One of the things that, that we want to continue to do as a church at Redemption 
is we want to continue to train leaders. We believe it's our role as pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And that means all of you all that are in your vocation. Um, we also want to train up those who would be potential leaders within the church, not just this particular local church, but the church around the country and even the world. And so we have opportunities where people are interns. Um, we also have opportunities where people are pastoral residents. And so an intern is someone who doesn't have very much in, uh, ministry experience who's being exposed. And a pastoral resident is someone who's already had a significant amount of ministry experience and wants to be involved in the local church setting. Uh, these individuals raise their own support, their own money, and they, they ask us to be a part of our, of our church for a season of time to be trained. Uh, they go through a vetting process, uh, just like if we were hire anyone, but yet they're raising their own support. Uh, some of them come having already been theologically trained. Some of them are in the process of being theologically trained. Uh, we use the language pastoral resident um, that we take from the hospitals. And so um, I've had three surgeries before, and every time that I've gone in for a surgery, there's been the doctor and about three or four guys or gals next to him with, with the white coat on. And they're people who have gone to school, that have gone through training. This is their last step before they become a doctor. And so we have that same system within Redemption. There's a couple guys that are in Arcadia, um, and we have two guys that are going to be here in Tempe. The first guy that I want to introduce to you that is not here yet is a guy by the name of Benjamin Jensen. Um, he is from Bethlehem Baptist Church, which is John Piper's church in Minnesota. So him and his wife, Lacey, and their little daughter, Zoe, will be moving down here in the next couple of months. And so when they get here, make sure to welcome them. They will be living here in Tempe. Um, and then we have another guy who's a good friend of mine. And so I want to bring him up so you guys can meet him. So put your hands together for Oye Waddell. That's nice. Get a clap for when you walk up the stairs. That's great, man. Yeah. <laughs> just, just the first time. Just the first time. Um, so tell, tell us your name, where you're from, wife, children's name. Just, just let us know who you are. Yes. O Oye Waddell is my name. I'm from Los Angeles, California. I've been married to my beautiful wife, Crystal Waddell, for 10 years. She's in the middle. You raise, raise your hand. Yeah. <laughs> we, we actually just made our 10-year anniversary September 7th of 2012, so it's been awesome. And then um, another clap. I like this crowd. <laughs> and, then, and then I have three kids. I have a six-year-old named Chariot, a four-year-old named Clover, and a one-year-old named Crescent. So, yeah. All girls. All girls. All girls. Yeah. <laughs> Lots <Hey>. of work. <laughs> <laughs> so let us know, um, like I said before, uh, as a pastoral resident, you've had significant amount of ministry experience. But if you can kind of just tell us your story from graduating from college to now being here in Arizona and then being particularly here with us, Redemption Tempe. Yes, great. So I, I went to school at the University of Washington. Go dogs! Any dogs here? There you go. Look at that. No, more claps. Look at that. <laughs> University of Washington. Uh, we actually won the Rose Bowl my last year, so I don't know if ASU fans can say that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was nice having OEA here, wasn't it? <laughs> No, so I, I finished at the University of Washington, worked for a nonprofit, and then I uh, got my master's at University of Southern California in public administration, started a nonprofit uh, sports ministry in inner city Los Angeles, ran that for eight years, had a great time, uh, decided that I want, didn't want to do that anymore, wanted to go into teaching and education, and so I moved my family, myself and my family here uh, to this great Phoenix, great city of Phoenix, it's an awesome city, we love it. I uh, went to ASU, got my master's in education, and now I am working as a pastoral resident. So it's a blessing to be here, and I thank you guys for having me join Redemption Tempe. Yeah, that's good. So, so that you guys know. <laughs> yeah, this is not normal. Um, so, that, so that you guys know, uh, when, when Benjamin comes as well as Oye, you'll see these guys as well as interns and different guys that we're raising up. Uh, you'll get a chance to hear their first sermons, their first response, uh, their first everything. And so uh, I'm saying that to you so that if you see someone freeze up here, just know, okay, they're, they're just learning. It's going to be all right, all right? And so be able to walk them through that um, and go through ministry. We don't know what the next step is for them, whether it's church, planning a church or what, but we do know that as a congregation that we want to come alongside them and help raise them. So get to know, get to know them, get to know his family, take him out to eat, bring him to your houses. Uh, sorry, bring him into your apartments and uh, make sure that you guys are able to, uh, to get, get to know them. A couple things that I want to just, I want to answer, even though you're not asking them, but I know you're thinking them. Um, Oye and I, we're not related. 
Uh, I've known Oye for a year and a half. That's it. Uh, we, we're not alike, um, and, and in most ways. And, uh, but now that he's on staff, I'm no longer the, the, the strongest on, uh, on the staff. But, uh, and as you told you, they did, they, they did win a Rose Bowl. They did. They did. But this is not Washington or Seattle. You're right. So, what do you guys think? Oh, yeah. All right. First Peter. Uh, this is, uh, I think it's about week three for us in First Peter as we are charting through this book. If this is your first time with us and you're just joining in, uh, we are going to be going through the book of First Peter from now all the way to Christmas, just looking at the letter that Peter wrote to a particular people that he addresses as elect exiles, meaning people who are resident aliens, who live in a place, and yet their home will be when Jesus comes and restores this world. And so, not only is this letter to the people in whom Peter first wrote it to, but since Jesus has not come back, we know that this letter is pertinent to us, is that we are still exiles. This is our home. We love Tempe. We love this city. And yet we know one day our Savior will come and rescue, restore, and redeem all of these things. So far in this letter, Peter has been talking about the gospel. Verses 1 through 12, it's just been the gospel. Week 1, week 2, the gospel. Uh, The gospel, how God the Father foreknew us. He set his love on us. How the Father uh, caused us to be born again. How we have an inheritance that's kept for us in heaven. How we, by faith in Christ Jesus, are also being kept That this gospel that we have, this good news, is something that the prophets would desire to experience and the angels themselves long to look into And so Peter so far has been laying down what is called the indicatives, um, what God has already done. And now he's about to transition into the imperatives, what now we do in response to what God has done. So, So in essence, he's laid down grace, and grace in itself leads to obedience, the commands in which God gives us to live. And so if you were here, a couple weeks ago, I had an illustration that we talked about being engaged and then the wedding. Um, being engaged, asking a girl to marry you, she says yes, and you plan, and then you plan for that wedding. In fact, most of us plan gobs of time for the wedding, um, and then we get married, and we go on our honeymoon, and then we go, okay, what's next, right? Like, the rest of our lives. Like, what's next? You're always going to be here. I'm always going to be here. We got to figure this thing out. What, what Peter is, is saying now is, now that you've got the gospel, uh, now that you understand the honeymoon phase, that you're, you're a Christian, He's assuming at this point that his listeners have believed in Jesus Christ. Now, this is what you do. Meaning, now that you believe in Jesus, this is how you walk out that faith. And what he points him to is the idea of holiness. The first thing that he says to these people that are suffering, and primarily their suffering is because they're Christians. They're suffering because they want to live for Jesus. Now, he says various trials, so there's other reasons why they're suffering, but primarily, Christianity at this time was not a lot of people. And so they were telling people about Jesus, they were, they were evangelizing, they were trying to make disciples, and yet they were a counterculture community, and, and they wanted to know, how do we continue to live in light of the gospel? And the first thing that Peter says is, he calls them to holiness. In fact, this week will be holiness part one, and the next week we'll look at holiness part two. And so this week, when we look at holiness, we see God's holiness and what it means to us. And so it's a quick definition of holiness. Holiness in itself is an attribute. It's a characteristic of God, that God is holy. It means that he's other, that he's separate, that he's above all things. He's without spot or blemish. That it speaks of his purity, that, that, he, that sin and God are separate. God is completely other. Um, It it could mean to be consecrated for a particular purpose or set apart. And so now when Peter calls us to holiness in response to the gospel, uh, fueled by the gospel, what, what he's saying now is how do we live as holy people? That we are now set apart by the grace of God, by the gospel, to be God's people in this culture. Um, set apart, not set away. He's not saying be removed from everything else. He's saying do the same things that the people in your culture do. You go to work, you have families, you have friends, you date, and the same way you do education, but do it in a way that shows that you love Jesus. Do do it in a way that shows that you're holy. And so naturally for us, that's hard because when we think of holy holiness, or even the holiness of God, we think about it in abstract terms. Meaning holiness is something that we read about. We maybe read books on God's holiness, and we see it in the scripture that he's holy, holy, holy. And and yet we don't understand what that means in our heart language. 
And what Peter does for us is saying, I'm not going to just leave holiness out there that you can just think about it or read about it, but I want to show you what holiness looks like on a street level. Meaning, I I talked to you about the other pastoral resident that's coming, Benjamin Jensen. He's never been to Arizona. He's never been to Tempe. I said, one, I think you're crazy. You're moving out here. However, interesting that you'd be moving out from Minnesota to Arizona in October. Hmm. Weird, right? And, and, and I, said, I talked to him. I said, you can read about Tempe. You, you can hear about Tempe. I can tell you about Tempe. But until you get here and I can walk you down the streets and I can show you the, the difference between North Tempe and South Tempe, that I can take you to places that people go. I can take you to the haunted house, a.k.a. Casey Moore's. I can take you to, to these, these places and let, let you know what Tempe is like. And then you can sense it at a street level. Peter is saying, I'm not just going to talk about the holiness of God, but what the holy, holiness of God in response to the gospel looks like in people, looks like in your life. So three things we'll look at at this first week, holiness part one, is one, um, what motivates our holiness, two, what enables our holiness, and three, what reminds us of our holiness. Uh, what motivates, what enables, and what reminds us. Before we get into it, would you bow your heads with me, and let's ask God by his Holy Spirit to bless our time. Father, we, we thank you that we can come together and sing of your great grace, that we can confess our sins before you, and understand, Lord, that we have received grace in Christ Jesus. God, I pray for the bulk of us who are here who have placed our faith in you, as Peter, the original audience of, of Peter, And those in this room, Lord, who are questioning, who are thinking, who are here, who have never believed in Jesus, Father, that you would speak to both of us, Father, that we'd be able to see what it means to be a holy people. Father, we'd be able to see what Christ has done on our behalf, that you would be able to take the scriptures and stir up our affections for your son, Jesus, and that by the Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate it, that we wouldn't just be a people who hear, but also a people who do. God, give us grace, give us wisdom and give us discernment. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter begins in verse 13. He says, therefore, pause. Uh, Every time you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore, all right? Just good Bible teaching. One, because the writer is about to connect uh, something that he's already said with something he's about to say. So he's already talked about the gospel. He's assuming here that we believed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and that he's going to come back and renew all things. He believes that, uh, he's assuming that we already believe that what we have is better than the prophets. What we have is the very thing in the gospel that the angels long to see. And now he's saying, if you believe in that, if this is true, that you believe in Jesus now, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's about to give us now the motivation for holiness. And the motivation that he gives us, the first imperative, is to set our hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to us. Before he gives the imperative, meaning what we have to do, what we should do in response to the gospel, he gives us a couple things on how to do it. The first thing he puts is preparing your minds for action. Now, this is a paraphrase that is not familiar to us. It's kind of archaic. Archaic. It means to gird up your loins. Um, most of us don't look at each other and go, you know, I need to gird up my loins and get to work, right? We don't, we don't, we don't use that language. What, what it meant for them is that men would wear these robes, and in order for them to maneuver quick and to get places fast, they would take up their robes and they would tuck them into their sashes. Um, most of us don't have sashes, right? And so maybe uh, a better translation for us is maybe um, roll up your sleeves and get to work. Um, you got to move. Or maybe here in Tempe, roll up one of your legs on your jeans when you ride your bike so your, the oil doesn't get on you, right? And so you have to go. So he's saying, prepare your mind. G- gird up your loins. And another reason why this is hard for us is because he's talking about the mind, which is the very last place you think your, your, your loins would be. So it's kind of confusing for a little bit. But here's what Peter is saying. Get your mind right. Um, if, you were, if you were going to have a motivation of the gospel, you have to get your mind right. Christianity is a thinking religion. It's not just a religion where I'm moved. It's not just a religion where I, I feel right. It's a, it's a religion in which you have to take what God has said in his scripture and think about it. He, he's saying, prepare your minds for action, meaning you're going to do something. The gospel of grace, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not just something I receive, but it's also something I live out. 
Um, it's something I receive passively, but something I live actively, meaning there is something that we have to do to live as obedient children. And so Peter says, if you're going to set your hope fully on the grace of God, you, you have to get your mind right. And the next thing he says is, is being sober-minded. Being sober-minded, whenever we see this, it's usually mentioned, uh, don't be drunk. Um, it means to have clear thinking. And if you think about people who are inebriated or intoxicated, who's drunk, their thinking, their, their vision, it's clouded. He's saying, fill your thoughts with the truth of Scripture. Be ready. Get your mind right. And then being sober-minded means keep it right. Meaning whatever it is in your life, whatever it is, uh, the actions that you engage in that cloud your mind, whatever it is that you, um, the things you do um, that cloud your mind, whatever it is, the things you listen to, the things you watch, and and you know those things, um, what are the things that cloud your judgment? What are the things that cloud your thinking? Whatever those things are, you, you have to figure it out. And, and Peter says, um, make sure that your mind is kept right. And then he says, in doing so, set your hope fully on the grace of God. He comes back to that consistent theme as the motivator and that theme of hope. Um, we've said it before, hope, when we naturally use it, is not the hope that the Bible talks about. The hope that we use is we hope for certain things, meaning we wish for certain things. There are, we wish certain things would happen. We should probably say, I wish. Hope here in the Bible is certainty because our hope is a solid hope. It is a, it is a true hope because the certainty of it is it's as good as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since Jesus did die and he went in a tomb and after three days, he rose again. Peter is saying, our hope is on that. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying conjure up hope. He's not saying try, try to hope harder. Try to have big hope. It's not the amount of your hope. It's the object. The, the, the motivation is not to try harder at hoping. The motivation is to now preparing your minds is to hope in the grace of God. Hope in the gospel. Hope in the fact that, that Jesus has died and forgiven you of your sins, past, present, and future that he's ascended to the heavens and he's coming back to restore and renew this full gospel narrative. Peter is saying, as you, as you want to have a motivation to live out holiness, you have to constantly be saturated by the gospel. It, it can't just be something that you believe to get into the kingdom of God, but it's something that you believe and now you actively apply to every area of your life, that you're saturated in this truth. It is, it is the grid in which you filter all decisions, no matter what the decisions may be. He's saying, now, set your hope fully on that, and when you do, it'll begin to change the way you live. The, the best way for me to describe this is my uh, in-laws are in town from California. One of the things that my wife and I try to do is tell our oldest son as late as possible when they're coming. Because we know as soon as we tell him, kids, he's three, has no idea of time. And so if you say they're coming, he thinks they should be there already. Like, hey, they're coming. When? Like, now? No, no, later. Later to him is like 10 minutes from now, he goes, are they here yet? And it's like, no, son, they live in a different state. Do you get that? Right? They got to get on an airplane. Is it here now? And the whole time he's just getting ready and he's excited. He's getting his room ready because he knows his grandpa's going to be able to play with him here. He's probably got a wish list because he knows grandma's probably going to buy whatever he wants. And so he's really excited, right? Um, he's obsessed with them coming. What Peter is saying is now, um, because he knows whenever grandma and grandpa say they're coming, they're coming. Because we know Jesus is coming, because we know the gospel is already at work in the lives of people, we should be obsessed in that way. Um, we, we should be getting things ready. We should be living in a way knowing that the gospel is true. And that would be our motivation. The, the, the motivation of the gospel in itself will give us the desire to be holy people. Peter now, in talking about the motivation, gives us uh, a positive imperative here. And then in verse 14, he gives us a negative imperative. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He's saying something's changed now. So so don't go back to to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, Oftentimes, we, we do injustice to, to, to passages like this because what we usually do when we say a former ignorance is we think of a particular set or rules or list of sins. Um, usually people who have what we would call uh, pass a past, we would say, you have a past. And that means you've probably been involved in some drugs and sexual morality and so forth. And the reason why I say we do injustice with these scriptures is all Peter is saying is, don't live as if there's no God. 
Don't, don't live as if there's multiple gods. Uh, don't, don't live as if you're, you're your God. Live as if Jesus is God. Live as if you have a father. Live as if you have the Holy Spirit. Live as if you believe in the gospel. Because if all we said was what Peter is saying is don't go back to these bad things, what it communicates to our friends who do not believe in Jesus, some of you here, is that Christianity is about staying away from these things. And then you would say, well, I've never been on drugs. Uh, I tried to get a date. That didn't happen, so I'm not even sexual. I mean, this is not working for me, right? So why am I here, right? And no, that's, that's, not, that's, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying the way that you live your life, live it in such a way that's filtered by the gospel. Um, don't go back to the way that you used to live. Um, meaning your behaviors as a Christian, some of you, you became Christians and your behaviors never had to change because you were just naturally good people. Some of us, our behaviors had to change because we were not good people. We were constantly working on that. Some people, some of the best people we know don't believe in Jesus. They're nice. They're somewhere right now mowing your, your, your no, they're not mowing. They're rearranging your rocks for you right now. They're just, they're just nice people. You go to church, I'll rearrange your rocks, right? Uh, you figure out how to be good, I'm already good. So Peter's not saying, um, just be really good. He's saying, live your life as if you're a Christian. Meaning if you believe the gospel, um, live out the gospel. There, there is a thought, unhealthy, unbiblical thought, that if I get grace, if I understand that God has forgiven me past, present, and future, then why should I obey? then all these things don't mean anything because I have God. It's right. It's faith and faith alone and grace and grace alone. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a term that was somewhat coined by, by Martin Luther in the Reformation called antinomianism. And antinomian means anti-law. Like you're against the law, you're against obedience. And he railed against it. And he was the one who said, yeah, grace and grace alone. We become Christians by faith and faith alone. It's nothing that we do. And the way that he says it is we are saved by faith and faith alone, but not faith that remains alone. Meaning there's no way that you can take grace and, and, and detach it from obedience. Um, there's no way that you say, I'm really, really obedient, but yet I'm not sensitive to the gospel. That, that the two of them are inextricably woven together. That if you believe the gospel, that means it should show up in your life. That there should be growth, that there should be obedience as an obedient, obedient child. And what, what Peter is saying is, if your motivation is right, if your mind's not clouded, if you set your hope on the gospel, if you constantly return to the gospel, now you can walk, begin to walk in holiness. And if you're walking in holiness, if you're walking in light of the gospel, he's saying, don't, just don't go back to your former ways. Don't do business the way that you used to do business. Don't do relationships the way that you used to do relationships. Um, don't do education the way that you used to do education. Some of you, even as I said that, thought, I've never even thought about what Christianity or what the gospel has to do with those areas. That, that's why I said Christianity is, is a thinking religion. That's something you should be thinking about. How do I apply the truth of the gospel to these areas? Because that's what it means to begin to live out holiness. Amen? P Peter transitions from talking about the motivation for our holiness to what enables our holiness. Like what, what frees us? What gives us the ability? Um, in verse 15, he says this, but, and so do not uh, be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Um, here, here, here's what Peter is saying. Um, you shall be holy. That, that, that's a huge command from God. He says, but he who has called you. Now, I want to pause here for a second, and if you have a pen or a pencil, to underline that word, called. Because before now, he says, for us to be holy, God does something. Um, the word holiness in itself for us, the reason why I say it, it's abstract, is normally we don't use holiness in a healthy sense. We, we use the word holiness to make fun of people, right? You don't want to be holy. Are you kidding me? I'm a Christian. The last thing you want to do is be holy, right? Um, that's for nerdy people or churchy people or self-righteous people. Man, no, get holiness away from me. I'm grace. No, we should be holy, but we don't have an understanding of it. Or what we do on this side is we place far too much externals on holiness. Holiness means I take my Bible and I read it more. Ho holiness means I pray longer and louder and in a better voice, right? Um, ho ho holy, holiness, holiness means I fast longer. No, all of those things are healthy. You should do other than the prayer voice. You should do all of those, you should do all of those things. But that's not what makes you holy. Your externals do not make you holy. Remember we said God is holy. We can't just become holy. We, we're not born into this world holy. 
we, we, something has to happen to us. Meaning, when it says, do not be conformed to your former passions, that's what you naturally do. Apart from the gospel, you are naturally who you are going to be. Um, you could be the best person, the nicest person in the world, but you have now inherited sin from your father. And ultimately, your ultimate father in Adam. That we are by nature children of wrath, that we are sinners. Um, we do things that our parents, they don't even have to teach us. They just, we just do them. For, for instance, my dad. Love my dad. My dad introduced me to some of the best things in the world, like jazz music and R&B, right? Um, my dad never showed me how to dance. My, I, don't, I don't even know if he can dance. Um, he never showed me how to nod. My dad never said, hey, um, this is what you do with this beat comes on. Do this. All right, and then just do this. Right? He never said, and I was like, okay, like this, dad? That, that, never, that never happened. It was just, that's my dad. He listened to that. It was a little bit of no pain, no gain, and then a little bit of Coltrane. That, I didn't do that this morning. But that rhyme. <laughs> he didn't teach me that either. And so now um, my sons, my two sons, one's one and a half and, and one's three and a half, is when there's beat or music that comes on, probably Christian music, rap music, um, when, it, when it comes on, is, is if they're in the back in their car seats, it's the funniest thing ever. They do this. And I look at my wife. I'm like, this is crazy, right? And I know it didn't come from you, so it probably had to... It, <laughs> it probably had to... It probably came from me, right? They're stewards. There are certain things that we do because of what we've inherited. Now, that, that's funny, but, but um, sin is something uh, that's inherited ultimately from Adam. And so when God calls us to be holy, it's impossible. Um, apart from the gospel, it's impossible. Because of our sin, if he himself is holy and he's separate from sin and we are sinners, there's an issue there. Um, what we need to happen is for God to step in and do something. So that word called there initiates it or it enables us to be holy because it's not something that God looked at you and thought, you know what? You look like you're going to be holy, so I'm going to do something. No. God in his love for us says, I call you. My good friend Tyler always says, you're not, you're not called because you were qualified, but you're qualified because you're called. Meaning what makes you and I holy is because God makes us holy. What makes you and I holy? It, this is an identity issue. This, this is not before it gets into an action of what we do. It's about who we are. Um, the, the implication is if we are holy because of what God has done, we will live holy. Of course, there's actions, but the actions proceed his doing. And so if God calls us to do something or be something, it's because he himself has already done a great work in us. And so that word called means so much. All you have to do is think about your, your, your biology class. You, you learn about don, dominant and recessive genes. Um, the recessive genes are the lowercase letter. That, that would be our father. That'd be Adam. That's what we have in sin. That's who we are by nature. It's in us and it's still in us. But then you have the dominant genes that dominates that. And that would be the capital. And so we all have earthly fathers, whether we know them or don't know them. I mean, there's things about them we like and there's things about them we don't like. There's things about them that are in us that we don't like. But by faith... We have a heavenly father and it's capital, meaning now his love for us, his call in us, it trumps or it dominates even the sin in our own life. That even the sin, your sin, my sin, God's love for us, his holiness overwhelms that. That, that, that is God now calling us. And I spend the time on this when it comes to holiness because we all have ideas of holiness and it's usually first and foremost something I have to do. And it, it usually goes to spiritual disciplines. But Peter doesn't stop there. Because you're called by God, now you're qualified. Now live out who you are. Um, live out as obedient child who you are. There's, there's family language here, that he's your father, that he calls you. But Peter says now, he says, verse 15, be as, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now he gets the action. Meaning, now that you are, through the gospel, God's call for you, the Father, you are holy, now live it out in everything you do. Meaning, you never get to take a play off. I mean, the way that you do business, the way that you do sports, the way that you do education, the way that you vote, politics, all of that, it comes an understanding of how do I bring glory to God? The way that you use your language, this is something that's getting me. Our, um, I found out, I've, here's what I've noticed about our church. We are really, really a sarcastic church. And I go, I wonder where that comes from, right? Um, and and, and I, I know it's on me. And, and I'm not trying to say you get rid of sarcasm. As soon as you talk about holiness, people start taking their hats off. They, don't want, they want to get rid of their tattoos or piercing. No, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, do we think about what it means? 
that if God has gone through great lengths in Christ Jesus now and he's called us to be something and now we're supposed to live it out, do we think about and all of our conduct and everything that we do and everything that we say that we are, we are, we are God's people set apart um, now in this culture, one, to bring glory to the Lord and to, in what we do, be a witness to those around us. That, 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 that the Father now enables us to be able to do that. And so he says, be holy in all your conduct. You see, we are one with God now. And God can't stop being holy. Um, if God were to stop being holy in any area, if he's only holy um, in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, then he ceases to be God. He's holy throughout. Jesus himself showed us what holiness looks like in the flesh. And, and Jesus wasn't floating around. He was hanging out with people for 30 years. He had a job. He, I love it that Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. And, he, and I don't know if you know what he did, but he turned water into wine, the most delicious wine ever. Um, that, most of us go, that's not holy. I don't know. Jesus did it. Have you? I, I'm just saying that there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense where he's normal, but yet he's always looking to the Father and always doing what he sees the Father doing. And so as the Father enables us to be holy in all of our conduct, we are to be holy. P- Peter says here in verse 16, as it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Um, he alludes now to Leviticus. I believe uh, the more I do study in, in this first Peter book is that Peter, when he talks to this, his audience as exiles, he's not just thinking about exiles like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I believe Peter, being a Jewish person, is looking even further back um, to in between time of the Exodus when God rescued his people out of Egypt and prepared them in the wilderness before they went into the promised land. Because he continues to use language and references from that, that particular time. And so Peter now quotes from, from Leviticus chapter 19, talking about being holy. God, God called his people to be holy after he did something for them. Meaning he had already rescued them and said, I'm your God, I'm your God, I'm your God. I've rescued you. That's what he says in Exodus 19. And Leviticus 19, he says, now be holy. Leviticus 18, he says, don't be like the people that, of the land you just left. And then don't be like the people in the land you're about to live in. And so he tells us, live around people, love them, care for them, play with them, work with them, be their friends, but be uniquely mine. Because as we are now, it's not God is saying, prove your holiness. He said, no, there's a missional component here. Meaning not only are we honoring God, but we're being a light to the other nations, to the other people around us when we live out the conduct that God has given us. And so God says, be holy as I am holy. I can't, I can't change, right? God, God doesn't stop being holy. Um, think, think about this. When, when people who we know, their character changes, it bothers us. We, we, we don't trust them anymore. Um, e- even if it's people we like, like our music artists um, or artists or actors, right? For me, my favorite, my favorite actor, hands down, Denzel Washington. Love the dude. A lot. He's like the best actor ever, right? The one movie about Denzel that bothered me and happened to be one of his best movies was Training Day. I don't know if you've ever seen Train Today. It's rated R. It's probably not holy to watch it, but I, I wasn't a Christian. And so the, when, train, when, when Training Day came out, Denzel plays the bad guy. And it was hard for me. He did a great job, but it was hard for me because I'm like, that's not, I'm used to John Q, right? I, I want to see the, the man on fire Denzel who takes little, you know, when Dakota Fanning was real young and cute, he takes her and he rescues her. Like, that's the Denzel I want to see. And it, it, it kind of bothered me. If, if God himself stopped being holy, it should bother us. In the same way, I think that when we are not living out to our calling, it bothers God. And so he says to these people, these suffering people, he says to us, um, you in this room who are Christian, be holy. I've already done the work. You live in response now to what I've already done. Amen? That's not the hardest part, and I think, in this text so far when it's talking about the Father. Verse 17 may be the hardest. He says, and if or since you call on him as Father... Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exiles. When we hear the Father who judges, when we hear anything about fathers or God being our Father, um, it, it's hard for us for a few reasons. One, we take, some of us take our personal experience and we place them upon God. Um, and we could just take our cultural experience and we place them on God. And just to be, to be honest with you, culturally, uh, it's hard for us. Um, just in our culture, there's a few things that, that, that I jotted down that's an issue when it comes to father, and especially a father who judges, right? Um, the first thing is um, father has the ideal of authority, that, that he gets to make the rules, that, that, that he gets to see what's happening. He's in control. Um, we don't like that. We, what we have now in our culture is equal opinion. What that means is um, we believe that, that 
our opinion, everyone's opinion has intrinsic value that the, the importance is the same. It's just the same. What's right for you is right for me. What's good for you is good for you, not for me. I'm glad you do it. There's no such thing as absolute truth. That's what we're taught at our university. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Um, we will hear our friends tell us that, even though that in itself is a truth claim. And so therefore, who's to say there's authority? I remember talking to one of, one of the teachers um, in our congregation who says that now um, it, they can't give detention to students um, because they wanted to give detention to a student, a detention, you know, a kid got in trouble, and the mom called and says no. So mom's like, no. And I'm like, okay. So what that means now is that kid knows if I get in trouble, I can call my mom and she could veto this teacher. So this teacher has no authority over me. And that's just hard when you're trying to lead people. Um, I, I, it went from years ago that teachers used to be able to spank you in the classroom um, to now they can't even give you a detention. I wish, I wish that we can go back. I'd go, I would quit and become a teacher tomorrow, right? <laughs> and I'm done, guys. I'm just trying to just do my job, right? For the glory. And so I, I, would, I, would, I would do that. And there, there's a sense where there's, there's just no authority. The, the other thing is the elevation of youth. The reason why we don't want authority, the reason why we don't really care about a father is in our culture, probably now more than any time in history, it is just the right thing to be young, just to be young. If you're young, that means you're creative. It means you're hip. You have energy. You're pushing forward. The old people are in the way. Get out. Um, that's what it's like. I know some of you are like, hey, man, keep going, Ricardo. You're 29, right? And so I know it's like a contra- it, I'm contradicting myself, but it's true. In fact, some of you are at this church because you knew it was a young church. You probably left a really good, healthy church with a better pastor that can preach far better, more wisdom, better marriage. And you go, you know, I just want to go for those young people. I- I'm not trying to condemn you. Or convict you, I'm just saying, you left a good church. <laughs> the other thing, number three is what, 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 what I was going to say. <laughs> well, number three is, is, is the, the, the way our media portrays fathers is about as bad as it can get, right? I mean, you just think about the shows that you watch or the shows we watch. And what, what is dad's absent? Dad's a loser. He's a laughing stock. He's Al Bundy. He's, he's Phil Dumphy. I mean, he, he, he is just, he is just, let's just laugh at him, right? It's just dad. Who cares, right? So who, who, who wants to relate to God as a dad with that culture? But that's not what Peter's saying when he writes this letter. In fact, when Peter writes this letter, there's a vertical understanding of father, meaning God the father. And the context is first century Hebrew, not 21st century Western civilization. Um, God the Father, all you do is look at me in chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is what the Father has done so far. That word foreknowledge has everything to do with, uh, with love. Meaning God, before he even created this world, decided to set his love upon you. Um, that you would believe in his son Jesus and that no matter what you would become or what you would do with your life, that his love, his, his grace, his dominant gene for you would trump your sin, that he would be able to embrace you and care for you and draw you into himself. Peter also talks about this father in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That word mercy, we said, is that covenantal love, that hased love, that, that, un, that love that doesn't stop no matter how far you run, that God finds you and he loves you and he caused you to be born again. He's saying, this is the type of father that you have. You have a, you have a good father. And then first century Hebrew culture, the father in himself was an instructor. The father didn't leave to go to work, come home, watch TV and go to sleep. That the father, the father would work and bring his children with him. The father would teach the children. He would teach them the Torah, the words of God. He would instruct. He would pray. He would lead. That's what the father was. And so Peter takes that, that type of love and say, I, not that we should ever take our experience and place it upon God, which is what we do. Now, get it. I've done that numerous of times. It's been very hard for me at moments to think of God as a father because I think of our fathers, right? And what Peter is saying, don't take your experience of a father and place it on God as a father, but take God as a father and let it trump your experience. And so now, when we understand God's sovereign, gracious love for us, then we read again, verse 17. And if you call on him as father, this father who loves is also who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's saying the way that you live with a sober mind, the motivation setting upon grace, the father enables you. And as you live in the love of the father, walk with fear. There's a sense of reverence. There's a sense of love that the same father who loves you is the same father who judges. And, and here's what I'm saying by that. Peter could be talking of two things here. 
One, he could be talking about the fact that God will at one day, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, that he will judge Christians. Um, the, the seat is called the Bema seat, B-E-M-A, um, that we will stand before God and that God himself will, will, will judge us of what we've done, good and bad. Now, it won't be there where we'll be afraid of him. It won't be like we're there and he's going to say, you know what, you don't get into the heaven. No, 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 that is by his son Jesus. What he's going to judge is our works. He's going to say, okay, there's some things that you did in this life that you did in response to the gospel, and we will be rewarded. Now, as a church that preaches grace, that's something we don't teach a lot, that God does give rewards. Um, we, don't, we, we don't live for those rewards. We live in response to his grace. But when we live in obedience and, and, and we live this life and serve people in obedience, there's a, I'm not, he's going to say that passes through. And then there's going to be some things that we did. Some of the times, things that we thought were good. And we thought, man, this is pretty good. I'm leading this community. And he's going to say, here it is. And he's no, that, that's going to burn. Every believer will get in, but some of us will get in. As he says, as one, Paul says, one, escaping the flames. Meaning you got in, but who else close, right? It was, it, was, it was all about Jesus. And so he could be talking about future judgment, which I'm not entirely sure, and the Bible's not entirely clear of what that will be like. Um, it says there will be judging, but because we're already saved and redeemed, I don't think it's going to be um, him just making fun of us, humiliating us. There's going to be a great deal of he's a father who loves us. Which gets me to the second part of what I think he's talking about is the current discipline that the father does now. The reason why we don't think of God as a judge now is because most of us did not have fathers who, um, who disciplined us well. We had dads who flew off the handle and, and went crazy on us. Or we had really, really good dads that cared for us and showed us a lot of grace, but really no truth. And what, what we see now in the gospel is we have a dad who completely loves us. And because he loves us, he confronts us. And because he loves us, he disciplines us. And, and so some of us who have had that type of father, you, you have an ideal of what that is. But what we have in God is a, is a God who says, I love you too much to let you go too far to the left or too far to the right. I, I love you too much. And so whenever you are walking um, out of the step, whatever you're walking too far to the left or too far to the right, you're not going to experience my love. And therefore, in my love for you, my protection, my grace for you, I will, I will, I will discipline you for your own good. An illustration for this for me is I love my sons, and I want them to, I want them to be okay. I want to protect them. Right now, my youngest son, he, he's active. He's really, really active. And one of the things he likes to do is climb on everything, which is fine other than there's tile all over our house, and he doesn't know how to get down. And so he likes to jump on the couch because the oldest one gets to jump on the couch. We, we let people go crazy in our house, right? And so he can jump on the couch, but the youngest one can't because he jumps off of it and bam, head to the tile. This is not good parenting right? And so when you've been seeing the knots, it's not discipline. It's him, right? It's not me. Um, and, and so one of the things now, my discipline comes in and says, no, Eli, you can't get on the couch. Uh, not because I'm a killjoy, because I love him. God disciplines those he loves. And Peter is saying, if we are going to live out holiness, yes, the Father enables it. And he begins to discipline us because we will go wayward. We're sinners. We will, we will go to that, that recessive gene that was given to us by Adam, our own sin. And we need to constantly be called to the dominant gene and the love of the Father. Amen? The, the, the last thing Peter shows us about our holiness. One, the motivation comes by setting our hope on the gospel, being saturated in the gospel. Well, it enables us to be holy is not by trying to act holy, but understanding in God through his call that we're holy and that we live out this relationship by trying to imitate our father um, through grace. And last is what reminds us of our holiness. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I, I, I believe here again, Peter is going back to the time in between uh, the Exodus and the promised land. Um, m- mainly because he talks about Jesus having this precious blood like that of a lamb. 
And, and if, you, if you don't know the story of the Exodus, the way that God redeemed his people is that he gave them uh, the command to find a lamb, a pure lamb, and a lamb with, without defect, and that they were supposed to kill this lamb, and now they'll take the blood of the lamb, and they would put the blood on, on top of the doorpost. And so when the angel of death came to strike people down, it would pass over them. It was a means of grace foreshadowing to what Peter is talking about now, meaning the way that we are reminded of, of how to live holy is that Jesus himself has given his life, that, that he is the precious lamb, that we're not just rescued out of Egypt, but we're rescued out of sin, that we're rescued out of wrath, that we're rescued from ourselves, and we are now saved to be God's people set apart. He goes right back to the gospel. And in the New Testament, when the New Testament talks about blood, it's not just blood that flows through our vein, but it talks about substitution, meaning one laying down his life in order to give life to another. The the picture here is the way that we are reminded of holiness. The way that we are reminded is going back to the gospel, meaning you never get past it. It, you, You never get past that old rugged cross. You you never do. In fact, the longer that you walk with Jesus, the more, the longer you walk with Jesus, you don't become more holy. You understand and see how much more holy God is than you first believed. And you realize how much more sinful you are than when you first believed. And simultaneously, how much more truer is the gospel? How much more truer is it that you needed that precious blood? How much more truer is the only way that you would ever have the desire to obey God is not by conjuring up hope. It's not by just saying, just saying God is your father, but believing through the blood of Jesus that God is your father. Amen. Peter says this about Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter closes this first, this first part one of holiness going back to the cross because he knows that the way that we will grow in our understanding of holiness and our desire to live out holiness is by looking to Jesus. It's constantly clinging to what he's done on our behalf. It's the reason why we come to the communion table every week here. That the reason why we come to the table is we remember the gospel. We remember how much Christ has done for us. We remember in this moment, it's a reenactment of the commitment to say, God, you have rescued me, and now I'm going to live in response to that. Maybe it's you, you've been thinking the gospel is only about what you receive and nothing you do, and now you're saying, God, I want to be able to do in response to you. Or maybe you've been only doing, and you've been trying to find your righteousness and what you do, and you need to remember, I'm already righteous in Jesus. Why am I trying so hard? And the more that you realize that you're already righteous in Jesus, the reason why you obey is out of sheer gratitude and delight. That, that what Peter is doing with this people, what I pray it's doing to us, is giving us a desire and a picture of what it means to be holy. And next week, we're going to look at what holiness looks like in the context of one another's. Let's pray.